Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie Amaro, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insight. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we had two debates. I was at the first debate. It was my first debate that I ever attended, and I have not seen all the coverage yet from the second debate. But I was in the spin alley with uh, Governor Bullock's team. It was my first time going to a presidential debate. It was really great. It was a really fun experience. And um, this I is like a career bucket list item for me. Yeah, I was going to say, have you ever been one? Room. So like, what surprised you the most? What was something that like, if all if all you ever do is just watch the spin room on TV, you might not realize about how it works? I mean, I would say I, I mean, I guess I'm not I don't know why this is a surprise, right? It shouldn't be. But I, I was, it was like just a lot of, chit- it was like any of the other things with lots of press and reporters that you've been to, like the, you know, like going to the convention or going to, you know, the the Harvard thing we went to after the election, right? Where anything where there's a lot of reporters together. And so it is just a, it is like a, a social occasion, but there's only one topic of conversation, which is how do you think it went or what do you you think is going to happen? Like there's just one topic. So that, you know, so that it kind of focused everybody's conversation, but it was also, and I was surprised, I guess, at how friendly, I guess this is not that much of a surprise either, but like all the campaign operatives that were there were all very friendly to each other. It was like a really good, you know, like it felt like a good social kind of unified democratic vibe of people talking to each other. So I I have to imagine, so since you said you didn't see the second night's debate yet uh i imagine the spin room was a little frostier there maybe uh i mean understanding that like people who work in this business we're we're all professionals you know you work for candidates that oppose each other but like everyone basically gets over it but the first night's debate was much more like let's have a debate about the direction of the democratic party and what's the best way to counter donald trump and how do we reach out to people and the second night in my view, was people being like, okay, I memorized the oppo book on Kamala Harris. Let's go. Okay, I memorized the oppo book page on Cory Booker. Let's go. It was mm-hmm. like, it was, it was like more oppo dumps, people taking swings at each other. Cory Booker dropped S hole on CNN and it did not get bleeped. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, it was, it was, more, I think I used the phrase argle bargle. Oh yeah, I did see your tweet. Yes, <laughs> yeah. That like, if if you're wondering why some people were like, I think Yang did really well, it's because I don't know if you sounded different than the like mosh pit. I mean, it, it wasn't actually. I don't think it was that contentious compared to like. I don't, I'm just remembering Republican debates where it really felt like you know Chris Christie had just stuck a knife in Marco Rubio's eye, like. This it, this was like slightly less of that, but it was it was definitely testier uh, than than the first night's mm-hmm, debate. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, I mean, there's something about the format that ultimately you know encourages people to kind of barge in, right? So, I mean, there's some there's some element of that. I mean, they tried to minimize that from the first round of debates, but there's still there's still a piece of that that you know wanting to be. If you're if you want to have a a not I don't want to say a confrontation but you know challenge one of the other 
uh, folks on the stage and you end up getting a little bit more airtime. That certainly seemed to be true, you know, the first night. Yeah, I think that's why you saw so many people show up at that at the second round debate, like a little ready, more prepared to take a punch because. I mean, Kamala Harris, would, you know, we'll talk about this in a, in a moment, you know, did kind of make a pretty significant jump into that, you know, tier 1B of, of the Democratic field uh, based, you know, I don't know that the issue of busing itself was the top issue for a lot of Democratic voters, but that was the clip heard around the world out of that first phase and being the subject of one of these viral moments where you're kind of sticking it to one of your opponents is uh, is a strategy. It seems like more and more people were pursuing last night. I think the only person that really did it effectively was Tulsi Gabbard, mm-hmm. um, just like leveling Kamala Harris over her record as attorney general. Um, but, you know, other people, you kind of saw them like try to do it and it not really work. Like Kirsten Gillibrand tried to persuade people that Joe Biden wants women to not leave the home and be in the workplace, which was like, uh, I don't really think like there were just some attempted attacks that did not really land as well as mm-hmm. when Kamala Harris sort of got Biden on his heels without busting in the first debate. Hmm. Well, so okay. that's my that's my my punditing. Yeah, the, no, that's good. <laughs> and and what, what was your take when you were watching the first debate? Um, my takeaway was that Marianne Williamson has <laughs> this energy that like honestly she's she's gonna make the next debate I, like i i'm i am convinced and i think i even said on this show she's gonna hit four percent before this is all done and i feel even more confident about that prediction now um i think the the first debate was fascinating to me on the outside because it was like the party was very clearly having this showdown about what what do we want to do going forward? Do we want to like push the envelope and be super progressive because now is the time to be bold? Or do we want to say like, let's be pragmatic. Let's let's like make the progress we can. And we can't make progress unless we win the White House. And we're not going to win the White House by, you know, pursuing a socialist agenda. So let's be realistic about what can and can't be achieved and pursue the best possible realistic outcome. And like, I found it intellectually interesting, even if the debate itself was kind of a snooze and, you you know, like you were sitting there with popcorn, like waiting for Elizabeth Warren to take a swipe at Bernie and she never did. And, you know, it was less dramatic in that sense, but I actually thought it was more interesting from like a policy. Like it was a it was an interesting and coherent healthcare debate where I felt like the second night was just argle bargle. Yeah, although uh, no one on the stage would have called it, let's not do a socialist agenda. That's, you know, that's not. Well, yeah. (laughs) That's, I object strongly to that characterization. Um, You know, obviously people have different policy differences, but I don't think anybody would have called anything their socialist agenda on this. uh, Each other would have called that about each other. Um, So. Well, interesting. Well, I, you know, I felt, you know, I felt, well, one, it was really great to, for Governor Bullock to be on the stage after folks who've been listening to the show who heard, you know, sort of the various polling back and forth around the first debate stage and the first set of, you know, polling requirements the first time around. So it was really fun to, you know, see it from, 
from you know being there. So that was really great, and it was good that he got a chance to introduce himself and and talk about himself and his record in the state. And so um, I feel like in terms of searches and what the you know press reaction was, I mean, you could also kind of feel what the press interest was. This was another takeaway from being there. Like you could feel that people were interested in what Governor Bullock had to say after the debate, just by folks coming up coming up to him and talking to him. So um, so, so you could feel that you know, excitement. So we'll see what happens next. Well, let's dive into the top lines for this week. We're going to start off by talking about, have we had peak Kamala Harris? Will Mayor Pete ever win non-white Democrats? Uh, We'll dive into all of the polling that was taken before the Democratic debate so that you listeners can have context for when the next round comes out, how will things have moved? Um, we'll also dive into some general election insights coming from Margie's Navigator poll on swing voters not necessarily being who you think they are. Who are the most conflicted voters about Trump? We will discuss. Then issues of race and the economy were prominent topics in both nights of the Democratic debate. We'll talk about some polling on how folks think about things like economic growth for those in the Latino and African-American communities, as well as the issue of reparations. And finally, we'll talk about tech companies and the song of the summer exploded out of the TikTok star universe into the record books. We will discuss the songs of the summer based on searches for lyrics of songs. So let's talk a little bit about what the polling sort of showed As we headed into this first debate, president's job approval, not that interesting, hasn't moved that much since the past weeks. He's still at 44% approve, 52.8% disapprove. Um, Democratic nomination polling in the Real Clear Politics averages headed into the debate had Biden, again, as the front runner um, ahead of his opponents by about 16 points, his, you know, the second place folks. Um, he was at 32%. Then you had this cluster of Sanders, Warren, and Harris all in double digits. Um, a drop off from there, Mayor Pete coming in about 5.5%, and then everybody else at 3% or below. Um, Politico did some polling to see how many people intended to watch these debates, how motivated they are to participate, etc., uh, Margie, do you sense that these debates are something that a lot of Democratic voters are paying attention to and making decisions around? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the ratings, I, I don't know what the ratings uh, were for the one last night, but the ratings for the first night were certainly lower than the, the MSNBC debates. But still, I think you have a lot of Democrats who are paying attention to this. And, you know, I mean, it's a it's you, at the same time, you have a lot who say that they are still making up their minds. So the debates are going to be part of it. The coverage of the debates and what they're going to hear after the debates is going to be part of it. But, you know, I looked through a lot of the polling on like, have you, you know, have you really made up your mind or could you still change your mind? That question, regardless of sort of who you're voting for at this stage. So separate, a separate question entirely, not just undecided in the horse race, but like a self-report of how open you'd be to changing your mind. And in New Hampshire and Iowa, about two thirds say they could, people would be open to changing their mind through a variety, you know, just over the past month, not necessarily right this second, but in the recent polling where that question's been asked. And then nationally, the numbers are like, in the 80s, you know, among Democrats, like they could change their mind. So it's still very fluid. I mean, you know, obviously we track, we take a look at it and, you know, the debates are going to be important part of that. They're going to focus 
the you know focus the coverage focus you know the focus voters it's going to have some people sort of get on people's radar uh more easily um so i think it'll be part of it but at the same time you i think that high number that say they could change their mind is not going to change dramatically in the near future yeah this was a uh, so we at echelon do our verified voter omnibus every month and we did a deep dive into what folks who were Democratic primary voters or Democratic leaners uh, sort of said they were thinking how they felt about the vote. Um, and while we did not show significant change from June, I and mean, we showed the Kamala Harris bump um, a bit, she sort of jumped up uh, plus five points to to 11 percent in our poll. But Joe Biden is the way out in front for us. However, when you ask people, we said we, we because it's an, we do this online, you can put all of the candidates on the screen and let people sort of check the box for anyone that they're like, yeah, this is someone who when I'm thinking in the mix of like who I might vote for, these are all the people in the mix. Um, Biden's still out front, but his lead is much smaller. You have both Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren um, coming coming certainly within striking distance of him at 43% respectively um, of each of them with the Democratic voters seen. Yeah, they're kind of in the mix for me. There's someone who I, I would consider. Um, and in fact, you know, that's sort of where if you want to just differentiate Elizabeth Warren, um, Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris from say like a Mayor Pete, I mean, there's in the aggregate, you know, there's a difference of maybe four or five points between them. But when you ask okay, who would you consider? Then the drop-off becomes much more significant where Mayor Pete's not as in the mix with as many Democratic voters as, say, an Elizabeth Warren or a Kamala Harris uh, is. Um, so, you know, you have a pretty wide range. You know, people are not just like, I'm Biden or bust um, or I'm Beto or bust. You know, there's a lot of people picking um, a multitude of answers. What we find in our poll as well is that, that there is an it, it's interesting patterns of like who is supporting whom. I mean, Biden comes in the top across uh, white Democrats without a college degree, with a college degree, as well as black Democrats. Um, but certain candidates like Mayor Pete, for instance, does, you know, he's in the top three or four among white Democrats, both with and without bachelor's degrees but then kind of vanishes. He's not even in the top six among black Democrats in our poll. Um, then you have Kamala Harris, who she does quite well. She's third place among white Democrats with a bachelor's degree and with black Democrats, but is a little further down the list. It's, the differences are very small. I don't want to overstate right. them. Um, but, but in terms of percentage points, I mean, she's in the mid double digits among white Democrats with a bachelor's degree and black Democrats is in the mid single digits among white non-college Democrats. So, you know, the, the overall shows these folks kind of clustered somewhat closely, but when you break it out into different groups, there are big differences in who they, what type of Democrat they appeal to, which has implications because this is a state by state nominating process right. and the populations in each state are going to look a lot different. Um, would you say, yeah, I mean, did you ask hard ID looking at the, like, who would you consider question? Did you have hard ID so you could see, Oh, they, you know, people who know this candidate are X percent, you know, of, you know, th they are converting hard ID into I'm open to them. Or is it, you know, is it a function of hard ID or is it like, no, I know this person, but I wouldn't consider them. So I unfortunately don't have that chart here in the, the list. And I don't believe we actually asked name ID about all of them. Right. Um, 
So it's it's certainly no, possible. No, it's tough. It's tough to go through the yeah. list for multiple measures, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, for some of these folks, again, you know, could it be that the reason why uh, Seth Moulton is only at one percent is because people don't really know him, and again, he has not been you know featured on the debate stage, et cetera. Um, that's entirely possible. Um, but of course, if you know you're not able to get on the debate stage, you know, it's kind of an interesting like chicken and egg effect, which is frankly why, and you probably can't comment on this because this is your candidate, but I'm going to be really fascinated to see now that Steve Bullock has gone from not being on the stage to being on the stage, how much does that just sort of being present and in the mix on that first night offer a name ID bump, offer a polling bump? Um, I, as an outsider, am very interested to see that. I'm sure you are interested to see that. I'm interested. I mean, it definitely, definitely, you know, it definitely, you know, increased in searches. People were, you know, there was a lot of searches. And I think the story, since he was the one new candidate, you know, people were interested to kind of, you know, that that itself was a storyline. So, um, but, you know, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Obviously, overnight polls are, you know, I don't want to say suspect. They just measure a fleeting moment and have, you know, unclear methodological chops or mixed methodological rigor. But so we don't have any overnight polls to share. And if we did, we would <laughs> we would caution you about how to interpret them. But we will see over the next, you know, week or two. There'll be there'll be stuff for sure. Last time when we had the debates, the fourth of July was right afterwards. So that kind of like changed how people fit their, you know, time to their polling in the pub- public polling outlets. There was like a wave of polling that was released right before the Fourth of July holiday or that it was after the holiday. So that I think changed kind of the cadence of public polling, but we'll see what happens now. So the, last but not least, there's, you know, in the echelon poll, we kind of narrowed it down to that core four of Biden, Warren, Harris, and Sanders, because you can only ask a certain number of different combinations of this question. Um, but wanted to say, okay, if it came down to just two candidates, um, if it was Biden versus Warren, Biden versus Harris, Biden versus Sanders, who for whom would you vote? And this is the sort of thing that Republicans went through back when the, the operating theory was, well, you know, Trump is ahead, but if the party consolidated around Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, you know, there's more Rubio Republicans than there are Trump Republicans. Like that was the operating theory it wound up not necessarily panning out. I mean, that's not how the nomination contest works. You don't just filter it down to two and make it heads up. But nonetheless, you can see, you could see, okay, well, is, is it, where are the, the sort of factions of people? Like how big is the Biden faction of the party? Um, and we've tested both in May and July, these various matchups. Um, and Biden has sort of slipped um, as these other candidates, especially Warren and Harris, sort of made a splash in at least that first debate. Um, Warren doing quite, you know, sort of winning, quote unquote, the first night of the first debate and Harris kind of winning the second night of the first debate. Um, in our poll, we had Biden up over Warren in that head to head by 47. And now his advantage is only 19. Um, Harris was up 43 in May, now is up uh, only 23. Uh, Sanders, uh is also, you know, sort of Biden's advantage over him slipped, but not nearly as much. The more dramatic shift was Warren and Harris really sort of, uh, you know, closing in on him and, and frankly, coming coming certainly within striking distance. Cool. Okay. So folks can take a look in the voter verified 
panel that you did. I think that's great. It's important. You know, it's like just as a reminder of why that's important. There's lots of online polling and sometimes you have, you know, the registration and voter vote history of folks appended to it. Sometimes you don't. So it's just an interesting kind of methodological layer to the omnibus that you do. So let's talk about the general. Margie, what's what's going on out there in terms of the general election? Oh, before we do that, let's take a quick break. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. So we're back. Um, and we have a little bit of some new navigator analysis. And this is more general election. So this is, you know, this is obviously it's far out for general election horse race. This isn't a horse race question. This is really looking at this one issue of folks that we called the conflicted. So um, you probably hear a lot, you know, I'm sure, I think you've said this, Kristen, or you certainly hear people talk about this and, you know, you hear in focus groups like, well, I don't know about Trump on X, Y, and Z, but the economy is doing well, right? This theme that people may feel uneasy with the president about his behavior, right, which is, a, I'm going to just use that as a shorthand for all of it, right, all the things about right. his behavior that seem unpresidential to, to most, um, but they give him good ratings because the economy seems, you know, to be doing well by some metrics. So we wanted to look at that group. How many, you know, what percent of the electorate is in that group and what's different about them compared to other kinds of audiences? So we call them the conflicted. It's 6% of the electorate. So who are unfavorable or, you know, give Trump a, a, a disapproval rating, a negative job approval rating, but give him a good rating on the economy. So that group. They, you know, give him a good rating on one measure, they give him a bad rating on another measure, right? So that's 6% of the electorate, which you could look at as pretty small, given that we spent a lot of time kind of thinking about this as a topic area or a line of inquiry, right? We meaning the kind of the public discussion. Um, or you could look at it and say, well, that 6% actually can can change can change an election, right? I mean, it actually can have a real impact uh, in, a, in some states, right? So either way, it, it, I think the size nonetheless is pr- probably smaller than what people might think if you had a guess, if people were, were asked to guess what percent of the electorate would be in that group. It's probably a little smaller. Um, but here's what's different about them. And they, um, they feel a little bit, so- you know, for the most part, when you look at Trump's uh, approval rating, there's usually a lot of intensity around it. The people who give him, who are opponents of him, who give him negative job ratings, there's usually very, they feel very intensely about their disapproval of the president. And then you have Trump's base and, you know, there's a part of his base that feels pretty intensely supportive of him. This vote, this group, the folks who feel, you know, um, more conflicted have weaker impressions and weaker in their intensity on both these measures, whether it's approval or it's how they feel about him on the economy, where loyalists will feel very intensely positive about Trump on the economy and other folks, you know, who are against Trump will feel very intensely 
negative on Trump on the economy. This group feels, you know, much more like sort of weak in their positive rating toward Trump and the economy. And this is a group that's like more upscale. It's um, they're more likely to be over 50,000 uh, a year or more in household income. They're more likely to be men. They're more likely to be suburban. They're more likely to be uh, moderates and independents. Like this is, you know, plurality or majority in some of these various things, but disproportionately more in those subgroups than than the overall electorate, right? Um, they were disproportionately likely, about 29% of them, right, a third of them almost, between a quarter and a third, voted for somebody other than Clinton or Trump in 16. So we looked at this conflicted group over a variety of different navigator polls. So, was, you know, we assessed it over over a variety of months. So we have enough sample to kind of look at all their various, you know, how they how they split up in, in all these different uh, these different measures. And then in terms of like what else they think about and what their other you know views are toward Trump, they give them a strong rating on the economy, but they trust Democrats more on all the, you know, variety of other issues, taxes, immigration, healthcare in particular. So it's really just the economy where they have this conflicted view where they give him a positive rating on the economy, not on anything else. And, and this is perhaps, you know, one of the most important things is, you know, this conflicted group says that they're not going to, that the economy is not going to be a vote driver for how they're going to vote in 2020. So they, you know, about 83% of the conflicted say, you know, the economy's I approve of Trump on the economy, but there are going to be other things that matter to my vote. So they disapprove of Trump, but they give him good ratings on the economy. They feel more economically secure, you know, likely given their household income and so on uh, and education, et cetera. And they're going to be looking to other issues beside the economy. So I think that's, you know, kind of interesting guidance or at least sheds a little bit light on this group that people kind of, you know, talk about, imagine who they are and what they're like when you hear people talk about this audience um, publicly. With, but here we have some data to kind of flush it out a little bit. Yeah, I'm totally fascinated by this because you can, you know, there was a, another poll, Quinnipiac had a poll out where they asked, you know, for the general election, um, you know, are you going to vote for Trump? Or are you going to definitely not vote for Trump? And there they find about a third of Americans say they're definitely going to vote for Trump. You know, another 12 percent. Yeah, they're, they're considering it. They probably will. You know, gets you about 44 percent. Then you have 54 percent of Americans saying I am definitely not voting for Trump. Um, like this, it's not happening. So, you know, you have this like majority is like, no, this is not happening for me. But understanding those folks that kind of, you know, there's not a t- I don't know that there will be a ton of, quote unquote, swing voters in this election once we get a Democratic nominee and all of that has unfolded. Um, but there are folks that do feel at least setting aside who the Democrat is, you know, conflicted about Trump, where in these focus groups, they'll either say they like what Trump is doing, but maybe they're concerned that their health care costs are too high or they wish Trump would quit the tweeting, but they're feeling like their bank account looks okay. You know, like they're they're trying to figure out how do I weigh these things against each other. And so, you know, as it, with it being only 6% of a survey, it's kind of hard to dig into that unless you are aggregating multiple months together. So this is very cool that you guys have been able to sort of pull all of those data sets together to get that deep dive into that, that you know, relatively small but very important piece of the electorate. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's int- like, I mean, it's with all these things, right? It, with all these, you know, when you look at the, a lot of the public polling, the public polling doesn't always, I mean, it's, 
it has an immediate news value. To, it, sometimes you see like a full deep dive analysis or looking at, you know, comparing trend lines or looking at subgroups or, you know, it, you know some sort of deeper dive that takes a little bit longer, right? But not always. And this was something, I mean, the, the that, uh, you know, the folks on the hub, uh, the navigator team put together that made it really, I think, uh, interesting way to answer some questions so people aren't just sort of making assumptions without really kind of digging deeper. Obviously, people self-report about how they are going to vote, you know, this far out is is just their assessment. It doesn't mean that that's exactly how they're going to decide later on. But still, you know, this we present them with two options, and you know, they are they are kind of a two balanced ways of of asking, you know, of describing how people might might vote. You know, um, I approve of him on the you know economy, but other factors are going to play a larger role, or his handling of the economy is going to be the biggest factor in how I'm going to vote in 2020. There's no mention of you know kind of any of the other types of issues that people obviously think about when they think about Trump. So um, so we'll see we'll see how how this group evolves. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that you all, again, you note that for these conflicted Trump voters, they're slightly, slightly less likely to be white than voters overall. Um, and I think this sort of sets us up nicely to talk about this next poll, which comes from something called Groundwork Collaborative. Margie, I'm not as familiar with who Groundwork is. Are they, is it an organization that, that's on the Democratic side that is more well known? So it is a, like a policy group and groundwork collaborative uh, along with had a, uh, other other sponsors uh, who are also part of this uh sponsors of this work so uh, that included uh Unidos and included the joint center um and there was some qualitative work uh by Topos which is a uh a, a research group here that does a lot of ethnographic um work and qualitative work and then we did this really large scale survey. So we had to 3,000 interviews and uh, 1,500 among Latinx adults and 1,500 among black adults. And it was mixed mode. So we did a third, a third, a third landline cell and online. Um, and surveys were available. You could take the survey in Spanish if you if, if preferred to. So it was a real, like, <laughs> real wide, both had breadth and depth in the in the instrument. So it was a really long survey. And you can see the top lines. We've released the top lines online. Um, and also with that large sample size, you can look at, you know, country of origin and region and religiosity and, you know, uh, whether one or both of your parents were born in the United States, like all, all kinds of different uh, audiences that allow it to, you know, can, you know, get some real interesting, uh, results. But there are a couple things that I think were interesting from the takeaways from the survey. Um, and folks should just, there's like all kinds of stuff online that people could take a look at. But, um, the first is, you know, that these two audiences are not, you know, monoliths or identical to each other. Like when you look at a lot of public polling, that there may be like a hundred interviews or a small oversample in communities of color. Not that that's bad to do a small oversample if that's the budget you have and your, you know, the main thrust of your survey is a national, uh, national perspective. But it doesn't give you a lot of like kind of deep dive into looking at the two groups. And you know, you have large margin of error, so you're not sure like what kind of audio, you know, what kind of differences really are meaningful. Um, but with this large sample size, you can see what the you know a lot of the real differences and nuances between and within the two audiences. So. Uh, you know, one is one key finding was that people felt more pessimistic about 
the economy of the country overall than about their own economic situation. And that's true with like lots of other different kinds of topics where people feel, you know, they hate Congress, they love their member Congress, or they tolerate their member Congress, right? There's, you know, they think public education in nationally is probably challenging, but their own schools are are doing well. Like the, you see that pattern in other areas, you know, in general in survey work. And so we saw it here. However, you know, Latinx folks felt more optimistic personally about their financial situation than did uh, African-Americans in our survey. And part of that has to do with the party differences between the two groups. Latinx folks were, you know, uh, were more likely to be non-Democrats than than uh, our black respondents. So there was that was piece, that was part of it. Um, and then we asked about I mean, there's it. The survey really focused on the economy. There was only one question about Trump. It wasn't about politics. It was really an economic focus and people's own personal economic experience. But then the other thing that, and then we can talk about the Gallup poll that was, you know, interesting is we asked people like, how big have a challenge have these things been in your life personally? And things like affording college or finding affordable housing and. Uh, experiencing racism at, at work and discrimination at work and, you know, affording, finding health care you can afford and, you know, finding a job that pays, you know, and increases with the cost of living. Uh, and so all of these, you know, and saving for retirement, like a whole list of stuff like that. And, you know, reaching your economic goals and dreams that you have for yourself. So th- those were a whole series of different kinds of challenges. And the ones that rose to the top were things like, uh, education and retirement and wages, like those were the three that were the highest, and uh, discrimination was was lower. But in the things that then we asked us the same series and said, how big of a um, uh, what how much of a government role should there be in these things? Should the government be doing more on this? The federal government should be having you know larger role on these issues. And the same one, not about you specifically now, just what the federal government's role should be, and. There, the ranking was a little bit different. So healthcare was at the top, even if it wasn't necessarily people's number one personal challenge. That was, you know, it was sort of mid-pack. It, healthcare was seen as the number one thing that the federal government should be doing more on. You know, your economic, your economic hopes and dreams for yourself, that's lower than it was as a challenge. People thought that it was a challenge, but they didn't necessarily think that that was, you know, what the government's government should be doing more on that per se. Um, and then sex, uh, racism at, at the workplace, while that was lower on the list of people's personal challenges, it was higher in what people thought the federal government should have a role in. So there's a lot more to it, but I'll, I'll sort of stop there. Um, but it's, uh, but it was, it was definitely like, it was a fascinating project. We're still digging through a lot of the cross steps because there's so much in there. Um, Yeah, I thought this poll was very interesting because a big argument that is frequently made by President Trump, the campaign, sort of his Republican allies, is that he will be able to perform better among Latino and African-American voters, despite his charged rhetoric, uh, you know, picking fights with folks like Elijah. I mean, all of the stuff that we've seen in the news over the last couple of weeks and months and years. Um, that he will nonetheless be able to overcome a lot of that because the economy is doing well for all kinds of people. And because you have, you know, oh, record low unemployment for African-Americans or Latinos. And I think this poll sort of suggests that that it doesn't suggest that that's, you know, necessarily entirely true or entirely false, but that um, certainly it does not feel to African-Americans or Latinos on balance like 
the economy or economic conditions in their community or their personal situation has necessarily all gotten better. Now, when they when you talk about the macro down to the micro, they people do have this more positive view at the micro level versus the macro level, which is fascinating because I actually wonder if you asked white voters the same question, would it be reversed? That you have, you know, say folks in focus groups who will say, I I hear that the economy is getting better. I hear that unemployment is low, that the stock market is doing well, et cetera. But I personally feel like I don't really know because cost of living is up. That it's like you hear in these focus groups, the rosier macro picture compared to the more sort of challenging micro level picture. This poll suggests sort of the opposite, that that for African-Americans and Latinos, that it's more that the macro level seems bad, but the personal level is more mixed or neutral. Um, and is that in part because these voters just don't like Trump and we know that partisanship really does also drive people's view of the macro level stuff? I mean, that's where you, you look at those charts of asking people, is the economy better or worse? And when you get to just after Election Day 2016, suddenly the Republican and Democrat lines flip on do they, where do, who do you think, do you think the economy is doing better or worse? Um, but that to me stuck out as like a really fascinating divide that, that is, is different than what I think you see in voters sort of expressing in focus groups generally about, well, I think the economy sounds like it's doing well overall, but for me personally, I've got these cost of living things to deal with. Yeah, I mean, so, well, two things, right? So one, we had the one question in the survey we had about Trump that said, it, so it was this, in your own view, what has been the impact of Trump's election on the economic condition of African-Americans and or Hispanics and Latinos? Has his election improved? Um, you know, we split up the question depending on the audience. Has it improved the economic condition of and blacks and Latinx worsened or neither. And uh, half of African-Americans said worsened and also half of Latinx said worsened. Um, there's a little difference between the two groups on whether, you know, between neither or improved Latinx were more likely to say improved 20% said that as opposed to 11% of black respondents who said that Trump's election has improved. That's a party difference. Um but overall, half, you know, of each audience said worsened. Um, and so, you know, and we didn't get into, and we do ask some questions about like the, you know, the privileges that some people have and, and whether it's just, it's easier for some people to, to get ahead or, uh, you know, or if you work hard, then, then um, you'll be able to get ahead. Like that, that kind of economic mobility perception. We also, you know, had some other questions like some, you know, forced choice kinds of questions on the role of, of racism and, and so on. We don't get at what I think, you know, you're talking about, or at least how I, how I see, you know, the issue that you're talking about, which is like when, when Trump talks the way he does, like, you know, can you, can you even then listen to any kind of economic message from him you know, when, when, uh, you know, when he talks the way he does and he behaves the way he does. And I guess, you know, there are folks who feel differently about that than I do. You know, we didn't ask that question in this particular survey because that's really more of a political question. Um, but it, you know, I, I think it's, I think the language that he uses is so, extreme and severe. It's like an obvious, you know, cue of sort of openness that I think is, you know, it just makes any kind of economic conversation 
challenging what you know whether you're in a community of color or not that's my, you know that's like that's my progressive blue blue jersey talking that's the you know blue margie's uh point of view well should we take a quick break when we come back we'll talk a little bit about sentiment toward tech companies as well as the song of the summer support for this podcast comes from invent together According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. All right, we're back. So the world of tech and politics has been in the news an awful lot lately. On the Republican side of the world, there has been a lot of uh, debate over the big push from Senator Josh Hawley, one of the freshman senators from Missouri. He has really taken it as his sort of mission to fight social media companies. In his view on the ground, they have created an addictive product with corrosive effects. Uh, not unlike other things that the government regulates heavily. And so this has obviously sort of separated him from the more libertarian free market side of the party that says, why are you telling companies what they can and can't do? Let parents make decisions for themselves. Let, don't, don't have the government stepping in and regulating social media as if it's, you know, drugs. Um, but this has been, that's just one piece in a larger puzzle, which has been, the challenges the tech industry has faced, you know, going from being really a darling. I mean, you if you went to the per- political conventions in 2016, you know, the, the Google parties or the Facebook, uh, you know, uh, lounge area or whatever, you know, political folks sort of love to go there. It's, it's cool to be seen there. These were brands you wanted to be associated with. And now politically, they've become much more um, embroiled in controversy, whether it's frustration with these companies' handling of election interference in 2016, whether it's privacy concerns, um, you name it. There are tons of reasons why folks on both left and right have criticisms of these companies. And Pew Research Center is showing um, that there are, that, that the decline in positive feelings toward tech um, is, it is transcending parties. So back in 2015, um, Gallup asked people, do you think that technology companies are having a positive or negative effect on the country? 71 to 17 people said positive versus negative. Um, overwhelmingly, again, these were cool brands doing great, exciting things, and you wanted to be associated with them. Now that sort of shine has worn off. Um, it's still net positive, 50 to 33 positive to negative. Um, but really, for those who are partisans, those numbers have fallen pretty dramatically. And for both parties, nowadays, it's only 54 percent of Democrats and only 44 percent of Republicans who say tech companies are having a positive effect on the way things are going in the country. Um, 
There's also been declines for how Republicans view uh, colleges and universities, a drop of about 20 points, um, where for many other institutions, Republicans have gotten more positive. Banks, uh, even labor unions, Republicans have become slightly more positive toward them. Large corporations, um, some pretty, you know, it's not just that Republicans and Democrats are souring on everything and everyone. Um, but tech companies are really where you see this pretty dramatic drop off. Yeah, I mean, remember we had Bruce Millman on last summer, I guess it was, um, and we talked about a poll that we did with uh, with him for the uh, tech CEO council. And like, how do you define tech? Like, what do you what are you using to define tech? Like, tech companies, people think of, you know, some people may think of things like social media. That's quite different than thinking of you know, companies that make like computer processing chips, you know, or Mm -hmm. other kinds of equipment, like that's also tech, right? Um, Like what is tech, you know, people, you know, tech can be all kinds of things. But when it's when people are thinking about social media, then it has political issues or their kids spend too much time on Instagram and Snapchat. Like it's just, you know, it, it has a whole variety of different kinds of issues while tech more broadly, while, you know, not always clear what people, you know, people may be thinking different things when you hear the word tech, but the broader definition of it has a different connotation. But here they just say tech companies, which, you know, I, I think, I think most people are, you know, thinking so- social media, but it's not totally, or like Apple, you know, but they're, but it's not totally clear. I mean, it's not that the question's not clear. It's that, you know, I think voters are probably, respondents are probably thinking about a variety of different things. Yeah, I mean, and there's also, you know, I think your point is very valid that that how are we even defining a technology company? I mean, nowadays, all sorts of companies consider themselves tech companies, but their main product is not technology. They just sort of use technology as a way to distribute that. I mean, like, so for instance, let's take... Let's take a company that they are not a, 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 the pollster sponsor, but we are both customers, Madame LaFleur. Right. Um, you know, that's a, a company that sells clothes direct to consumers. I don't know that I would think of them as a tech company. I think of them as a clothing brand. But nowadays you could say like, oh, I work at a tech startup. We sell clothes directly. You know, I mean, you could, right. the, the definition of tech company can be very broad. I target women online with like machine washable business wear. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like me. Yes. That's like not an official sponsor, but we love no all Um, all the. I mean, we'll take sponsors from anything in that cat like that category. That's like constantly (laughs) find has figured out how whatever tech company is behind finding me with like you know all birds away. You know, Emma Lafleur. Like that's that's what the internet thinks I need. Yeah, but you know, for for many of these companies, the different pieces of the tech industry will have different sectors. You know, right. I think social media companies are getting a lot of backlash from from Democrats for uh, you know the election interference stuff and privacy stuff. Meanwhile, other tech companies might be involved in AI, and they might be getting backlash because um, you know are these algorithms uh, you know biased against people from communities of color, or you might have a company like Amazon that gets both the president and Democrats up in arms because, well, are they paying a fair amount of taxes? And so it's also not like just one clear issue set that would make people more uncomfortable with tech companies. It's a very broad range. Yep. Yep. Okay. So the song of the summer, 
Like every there have been a lot of weeks where I'm like, we should have a song in the summer poll at the end and we found something else and we haven't done it. But this is its week. This is the week that we've decided to do Song of Summer poll. And I only know one of these songs, which is kind of pathetic. Um, because I don't really think I don't think like hits one on Sirius is totally age appropriate for my kids, but I know that I'm I'm alone in that. So they get hits one from elsewhere. I don't know where exactly, but like they know they know a lot of all the songs that are happening at any one moment, even though they're just tiny, tiny people. But the one that has made it through to my ancient ears is uh, Old Town Road, which I just I mean, I don't know. It's just funny when a song like sort of takes over takes over the universe in the way that one has. Like, Becky came home from camp. I mean, he's four. And he's like, Mom, I have. I learned a camp song. And I thought it was going to be like, Hello, Mother. Hello, Father. You know? Like that like camp song or like writing a letter or whatever. And, and he's like, starts singing Old Down Road. I'm like, that's not a <laughs> camp song. Like, that's not like, like a camp song. That's like a pop, you know, pop song. Anyway. Um, do you know the rest of these songs? Where does this, where is this list? This is an official list or is this, this just is, like this credit, the credit donkey of, of songs of summer poems? I think it's maybe a step up from credit donkey. It's, re- <laughs> it's relying on actual data, um, where, so it's from lyric find. So one of the, the, the way they've produced this list is not, you know, the, the way billboard or other charts would do it in terms of sales or downloads or what have you. This is about, songs where folks are sort of searching for the lyrics, which I think is, is an interesting model. Uh, the the songs, however, do kind of line up with, if you were asking me to construct a list of the top 10 songs of the summer, and this might be like the list I would put together, notably, there is a, this to me feels like a big slight to Taylor Swift. There are no Taylor Swift songs on this list. We may have, we may be past peak Taylor. Um, but did she release anything new this summer? Oh my gosh, Margie, the fact that you even asked that is proof that we are past peak Taylor. Uh, yes, she has a new album coming out in, I believe in August, but she has released a couple of, um, a couple of singles. Uh, notably, she released a single during Pride Month, um, that sort of featured a lot of, you know, prominent uh, LGBTQ, uh, celebrities familiar. and yes, it was kind okay. of, I that mean, was a thing that was part of the whole, like, yeah, okay, I remember. Right, but the fact that none of her songs are on this list, very interesting. Um, so you have Old Town Road, number one. And Old Town Road this week made history by being, I think, the song to sit at the top of the Billboard charts the longest. The way this was achieved was kind of a cute gaming of the system a little bit. Like, I don't hate it. It's all against, or it's all in line with the rules. So basically, if you release a remix of a song, but I think as long as it keeps the same title and a lot of the same original structure of the song, but like if it changes a verse and adds a new artist, you can still kind of count it toward the original song. Um, so there have been like a series of remixes of Old Town Road that are all sort of keeping the song afloat at the top as every new remix comes ah. out. Yeah, so that's that's how I mean, and, and you know, everybody loves Lil Nas X. He's got a very good, you know, charming social media presence. Um, so he, you know, everybody's people are generally happy for him. I confess, Old Down Road's not my favorite song on this list. And frankly, if we're stacking it against previous songs of the summer, um, Carly Rae Jepsen, "Call Me Maybe" is the undisputed number one peak song of the summer, champ never to be defeated like so there are there are past 
songs of the summer I feel more strongly about, but you have Old Town Road is number one. Second place is Bad Guy by Billie Eilish. Very good song. Um, Peace of Your Heart by Medusa. Um, if I Can't Have You by Shawn Mendes. Wish You Well, Sigala featuring Becky Hill. Number six, Never Really Over by Katy Perry. I would argue that one should be higher. I'm not even a huge Katy Perry fan, but I like grudgingly admit I love this song. Um, and then Nothing Breaks Like a Heart, Mark Ronson featuring Miley Cyrus at seven. Huh. It's amazing that they're, that Billy Ray Cyrus and Miley Cyrus are on this list. Like, I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of amazed by the Billy Ray Cyrus's like <laughs> ability to like well, stay, stay in, in front of us, like for as long as he has. I don't know. I just it's find 100% that kind of because he's Miley Cyrus's dad. So what's fascinating is like Miley Cyrus originally rose to prominence as Hannah Montana on the Disney channel. And like, was the daughter of famous icky breaky heart yes. singer Billy Ray Cyrus. But then I think Miley Cyrus has become much more of a famous global phenomenon. Sure, exactly. And so now it's almost inverted. Like 10 years later after the like kind of peak Hannah Montana, it's now Billy Ray Cyrus, also known as father of global mega superstar Miley Cyrus. I, yeah. I would argue that the fame dynamic has flipped quite a bit it's in quite, the last decade. It's quite something. It's quite <laughs> something. I know. But he, he, I, I always appreciate when a celebrity is like not taking themselves so seriously and that's what I get from him. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's the vibe. The vibe he puts out into the universe. I, I <laughs> think that's To channel my Marianne Williamson. <laughs> uh, so. Marianne, I'm telling you, we're, I, so we're taking next week off on the podcast. Is that correct? And then we come back a week later. Next week, no. Next week, we oh no, we're are doing on a the show sep- next week. We're, taking we're doing a show next off. week. We're taking off the following two weeks. So we will have a podcast next week where yes. we can see if my prediction does. Does my girl Marianne? We will have four percent. We will have post debate polls next week. We will see the post debate polls that are not kind of like squeezed in right before a major holiday. So we will see what we, what happens. Fantastic. Well, what did we learn this week? Uh, well, what's on the trend line? Uh, on the trend line this week, I'm going to be talking to two younger activists. Um, these are Gen Z folks. One, um, one in particular, very near and dear to my heart, former echelon intern, uh, Kira O'Brien, she is with Students for Carbon Dividends and testified on, on the Senate side last week alongside uh, noted the pollsters conversation topic, Frank Luntz. Um, ah. So we're going to talk to her about that experience. And uh, it's, nice. it's going to be fun. We're going to learn how is Gen X viewing the world of activism and more. Oh, that sounds Gen great. Z, That's Gen a- Z. Oh, gosh, not Gen X. Yes. Yes. Sorry, Margie. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're always forgotten. Gen X always, always forgotten somehow. Um, okay, well, that's cool. I have a couple. Well, we could talk about it offline. I have some like I'm, I had some ideas for folks who are like coming out with books or coming out with things that are not quite pollster topics, but I think would be good trend line guests. Not that you need guest ideas. But anyway, we can talk about it. Um, afterwards, I learned that I could get up on the West Coast at 5 a.m. and still be able to record the show. That's what I learned this week. <laughs> I feel very pleased with myself. Um, so, uh, and I think we learned to not look at any rash 
post-debate polling. We will cover all that next week. Um, and folks should definitely take a look at all the top lines, both of the conflictor, conflicted folks. That's at navigatorresearch.org. And then we'll have show notes that will have links to all the stuff at Groundwork Collaborative um, so folks can look at the large uh, um, Black and Latinx survey that we did. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters individually at, at Margie O'Meara and at Case Solstice Anderson. You can find us on Facebook or on the interwebs at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.